You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, Romans 1, you're going to need that open and on your lap. That will definitely serve you this morning. And we're actually, we've got a lot of ground to cover, and so you need your Bible handy and, and ready to go for you this morning. So Romans 1 is where we're going to be. Um, if, you, if this is your first week, you have stumbled in in the midst of a set of sermons. This is week two called Prayers, where we are outlining some of the vision and values of Stonegate, just trying to clarify what it is that God has called us to do and to be about as a church what that is and how we're trying to do that. So, so you're in the middle of six or seven weeks of us working through that. So it's probably a great time for you just to be here and to see and hear the heart behind what's going on at Stonegate. And so um, with that said, typically in a set of sermons, I work really hard to make each one independent enough so that if you just came in in the middle of a set of sermons, you're not completely lost. This one's a little more difficult to do that because last week was such a fundamental, just ground kind of laying framework building um, sermon. And so with that, I want to take a second just to recap last week, and then we'll jump into the question we want to ask and answer uh, this, this go around. So last week, we were essentially asking the question, what is it that God has called us to be about as a church? What is that? And, and so there's a lot of things that, that we're not primarily about. We're not primarily a place for you to come in and consume religious goods and services, for you to hear some decent songs, for you to hear a, a, you know, a decent sermon, and then to leave. You, that's going to happen, but that's not primarily what we're about here. We're not primarily a social club. We're not a place for you to come and, you know, we're not like... A, you know, a country club. We're not a place where you have a nice event, kind of have a nice meal and do your thing, kind of rub, rub shoulders with the right. It's not what we're primarily about. That happens. People get to know each other here, but that's not primarily what we're doing. We're not about rallying people for a social cause. That's not primarily what the church is about. Now that's going to happen periodically. There's going to be things that God brings before us that we're going to be about here, but that's not what we're primarily called by God to do. Okay. We're not the Rotary Club. We're not the Red Cross. That's not what the church is. Church is bigger than that. We're not a dating service. Said this a little bit last week, and I hope that's not crushing for anyone in here, but we're, 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 not, we're not primarily a dating service. People are going to get to know each other here. They're going to get married. They're going to have babies and grow old together, but that is not. The purpose of the church is bigger than all of those things. Amen? That we've got a bigger thing that we're about here. And so um, we, we really let four questions drive last week in trying to make sure we've got clarity on what it is the church is to be about. And here was the first question. The first question is, what is God about? See, before we can answer the question, what we are to be about as a church, we've got to take a step back and answer the question, what is God about in the universe? And, and in light of Romans 11 last week and the rest of the Bible, here's what we said, that God is about the glory of God. This is what God is about. Now, when we say that God's about the glory of God, we mean that God is about spotlighting himself for the whole world to see and savor. He is about making his name famous here. This is Habakkuk 2. As the water covers the sea, so will the knowledge of the glory of God cover the earth. This is what God is about in the universe. This is the reason God does what God does. So here's what that means for you and I. That you're not the point. That I'm not the point. And the sooner we get over ourselves, the better off we will be. The, the, the point is God. God is the point of the universe. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't care for you and I. He does care for us. And we said this last week. God caring for you and I says more about God than it does you and I. Right? This is the difference between, we talked about this last week, cat and dog theology. You remember that? 
That, that cat theology goes like this. My master cares for me. He, he protects me, provides for me. Therefore, I must be God. That's bad theology. Dog theology goes like this. My master cares for me, protects me, provides for me. Therefore, he must be God. Now, I don't want to press this imagery too far, but can you see the difference in responses to a master out of those two, right? You have vastly different responses when you are looking at God caring for you, knowing that it's saying much more about God than you. Our hearts come alive to God in the midst of that. So we said this last week. If you want to know what motivates the moves of God, why God does what God does at the top of the list since the answer is the glory of God. So that question informs our question. So in light of that, what is Stonegate about? And this is what we said, that Stonegate is about the glory of God. Stonegate is not about you and, and your wants. It's not about me and my wants. It's about God and his priorities. That's what we're about. Stonegate is about making much of God. And so as a church, there's a lot of things that can be important to us, but there's only one thing that can be ultimate. And here's what we're saying is ultimate at Stonegate. The glory of God is ultimate. That we are a church that's wanting to make much of God. That is the priority for us. And and then we had a third question. How does God glorify himself? And so in light of God being about the glory of God, the next question kind of behind that, it begs the question of, well, how does God go about doing that? How does God glorify himself? And we said there's a million ways to answer that from creation to friendships to a good stake. There's all of those ways. But if you want the ultimate way that God brings glory to himself, this is what we said last week. That that comes through God's covenant community, the church. The church is God's primary means of gaining much glory for himself. This is Ephesians uh, 3.10, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, or you could just substitute in there, the glory of God is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is what the church is about, that that we are a people. I, I love how one guy said it, that the church has a ministry of magnification. That what the church is supposed to be doing on a corporate level and a personal level is we are supposed to be making what is huge, what is bright and what is vivid, real to the world. And that's the glory of God, how good and satisfying God is. That's what we're to be about doing. So so how does God get most glory for himself? Through his covenant community, the church. So in light of that, now we've got the last question of last week. So in light of that, how does Stonegate give most glory to God? How how do we get behind the glory of God and extend the glory of God? This is how we answered it in light of Matthew 28 last week. That Stonegate glorifies God by making disciples. This is what we're about. We are about disciple making. That means we're not about a lot of other things. So I, I just want everyone to hear this clearly. We are about extending the glory of God through making great disciples. Now, now when you're thinking disciple making, I just want to say this one more time this week. When you're thinking disciple making, there's two parts of disciple making. There is proclaiming the gospel to people who need Jesus and watching them respond. So that means that you and I, on a personal level, we have to get to know people who don't know Jesus. We have to invite them into our lives. We have to talk about Jesus to them. And then we get to watch what only God can do save a person. So so part one of disciple making is gospel proclamation to people who don't know Jesus. Part two of disciple making is gospel proclamation to those people who do know Jesus so they can actually grow in Jesus and mature in Jesus. See, here's what happens when you talk about disciple making in churches. Discipleship and evangelism gets pitted against one another. It's not an either or. It's a both and. We are about gospel proclamation to people who don't know Jesus, watching God save. We are about gospel proclamation for those who do know Jesus and watching God grow and mature them and walk beside them to maturity. 
We are about both of those. When you come to Stonegate, here's what I think you can expect from us. We are perfectly great with wherever God has you in your Christian walk. Wherever God has you in the journey, we're perfectly fine with that. But we're not fine with you staying there. We, we want to walk beside you and watch God grow you to maturity. So this is what we're about. So we articulated it this way last week. If we're using our vocabulary, here's our vocabulary. The mission of Stonegate Church is extending the glory of God by making disciples. Let me just stop there. This is the mission. Never changes. It's always around. It doesn't change in two years from now, five years from now, six years from now, 30 years from now. This is what the church is to be about. Extending the glory of God through making great disciples. Now, here's the question for this morning. We're going to kind of take step two in this set of sermons and ask this question. So if that is the mission, extending the glory of God through making disciples, what is the means? How do we do that? So it's going to take us three weeks to fully answer this question, this week and two others, but, but we've got step one in that today, and you're going to catch that in the last part of, of how we articulate our mission statement here. Extending the glory of God by, this, by making disciples, how do we do that? This is where it starts, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that is how we are going about making disciples. Okay, so in light of that, Romans 1.16 is going to help us. Romans 1. So we've got on the table today, what is the means? If that's the mission, disciple making, glory of God, if that's the mission, what is the means to accomplish that mission? Step one in answering that question starts in Romans 1. Verse 16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous, uh, the righteous shall live by faith. Now that passage is like packed full of gospel gold. So all I want to do today is just ask two questions of this passage and answer them. So, so question number one is in the first phrase, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We've got to figure out this question and this answer. What is the gospel? What is it? Like, we've got to be really clear on the content. That word gospel is a big biblical word. It's used over a hundred times in the New Testament. It it is all over the the place. It is, maybe you could think of of that word this way. It is the point of the Bible. The, The Bible is telling us the gospel. From Genesis to Revelation, this is what the Bible is about. It is about what God has done for us in Jesus, the gospel. So we've got to be really clear on this, especially in our culture that is gospel confused. We've got to be real clear on what the gospel is. So let me talk about it in two ways. Number one, the gospel means good news. Translated, gospel equals good news. This is what the gospel is. So in first century world, when when you would have heard the word gospel, that was not strictly a religious word. That was used in the common vernacular a lot of times to talk about um, just good news, announcements of good news. That, that was what the gospel meant. A gospel was an announcement that carried great news with it. So in the Greek language, it was often used in the, in the context of military battles. So if you can picture the scene where a general would lead an army out to, to do battle for a country or for a people. And then at the end of that battle, if he won, he would send back gospel, the gospel, this, this good news of what happened. And, and now think about this. This is the term evangelist. The evangelist in Greek language in the first century was the person who carried that good news from the front of the battle into the city and declared it. That's, it, that's an evangelist. So gospel is good news in the sense of this military victory. Our freedom is sure. V- victory is secure. 
And the evangelist was the one who delivered that message. So if you can picture this scene of you being in a first century city and all of the the strongest men in the city leave and they are going out for a battle. And you know, if they lose, you are done. You're about to have an invading army come in and pillage everything. And so as the, as the men go out, the army leaves. I mean, you are in not waiting for the announcement. The, the news from the front of the line. And then all of a sudden you see on the horizon a person running. And here's the problem. You don't know if he's a military advisor about to tell you how to fight for your life when the onslaught comes. Or if this is an evangelist about to give you great news. And all of a sudden he comes into the middle of the city and you figure out this man is an evangelist for us. And he tells you in the midst of, I mean, just imagine the anxiety in that, in that moment for a city. When he looks around to this group of people assembled and gives you the good news that victory is sure. The battle has been won. See, this is what gospel means. It's good news. Okay, now can we all agree with this? Good news has the power to change lives. It's got the power to change lives. Now imagine this scene. Imagine you're a POW in a, uh, in a camp and you are behind barbed wire and you are behind armed guards. And if you just look around inside this camp, you've got starving men inside of it. They're gaunt and you've got gaunt faces. They are like walking corpses. Some each day are dying in this camp. And, and all of a sudden this radio that had been damaged, that they'd been working on for months and months comes to life and they get a signal that liberators are just miles away from, from their camp. And now imagine this scene, if you're the armed guard and you look around and nothing's changed inside the camp. You still got men dying, they're starving, gaunt faces, all of that. Nothing changed inside the camp, but, but all of a sudden you see men that are banging on pots and pans going crazy. See, nothing's changed inside the camp, but because of good news, everything has changed inside those men, right? See, this is the difference good news makes. Okay, so, so here's the gospel defined. What is the gospel? Here it is. And we went through this definition a couple of years ago, and this is based off Romans 1 through 3. Here's the gospel defined. It'll be on the screen for you. The gospel is the just and gracious God of the universe. So God is just, he's gracious. And he's the God of the universe. He looked upon hopelessly sinful people who have rebelled against him, glory thieves who want to do life their own way from Genesis 3 on. And the question of the Bible is really, what is God going to do in response to our rebellion against him? Here's the answer. Gospel. He looked upon hopelessly sinful people and here's what God did in response to their sin. And sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all those who have faith in him, in Jesus, will be reconciled to God forever. This is the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus came and lived a perfect life in place of your very imperfect life, that he died on the cross as a perfect substitute for your sin. He died in your place. He took the wrath of God that you deserve there. He was buried in a tomb, rose from the dead on the third day, showing God's power over sin, Satan, and death. This is the gospel. This is what God has done for you to meet your deepest needs in life. Gospel. If if you want the gospel in one verse, here it is. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God, made him Jesus, who, who was sinless, who knew no sin, to be sin for you and I. 
In other words, Jesus, sinless, perfect, your record of sin was stacked onto him. He got all of your sin. And then that goes on. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to, to be sin. So that in him, in Jesus, you and I might become the righteousness of God. So, so he gets all of our sin, all of our sinful record is given to Jesus and all of Jesus's perfect record, perfectly fulfilling the commands of God was counted to us, given to us. This is the gospel. This is how you can be made right with God. Okay, so um, that clarifies the first part of that, the first phrase in um, Romans 1.16. For we are not ashamed of the gospel. That, that's the gospel. Now we've got the second phrase. Romans 1.16 says this. Okay, so we're not ashamed of the gospel, and then here comes the next part. For it, the gospel, is the power of God. Now here's the question that we need to answer. The power of God for what? Like, what does the gospel do? Okay, I understand what it is, but what does it do? It's the power of God to accomplish, to do what? Answer, Romans 1.16. For it is the power of God for, and just, man, if you want to highlight, underline, star, whatever you have to do for this word, for salvation. For salvation. Okay, now that word salvation is another massively big biblical word. It, it covers essentially everything that is secured for you because of Jesus's work for you. So it is big. It is a massive word. One of the ways that you can think about salvation, and this is what, how I want to kind of connect it this morning, is you can think about this word salvation in three tenses. There, there's three different ways that this, maybe the salvation, you could think of it applying to a believer's life, to a person's life. There's three different ways this salvation works itself out. So let me kind of work through these three tenses in answering what does the, the gospel accomplish? What does it do? It's the power of God to do what? Three tenses. Tense number one is a past tense view. And I'm speaking as a, from a believer's perspective in the room this morning, that if you're a Christian in here, there is a sense in which when you think about the gospel and what it has accomplished for you, you've got a past tense view of that. And here's the past tense view, that the gospel saves from the penalty of sin. This is one of the things that the gospel does for us. It saves from the penalty of sin. Okay, now there's a lot of places I could show this uh, kind of, you know, to you in the Bible. But let me just give you one. This is going to be on the screen for you. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. This is the gospel saving from the penalty of sin. This is a believer being able to look back at the moment that God saved him. Be being able to look at that moment where they were converted. John 5, from, from death to life. Okay, th this is how Ephesians 2 would put it. For by grace, this is talking to Christians, for by grace, you have been saved. That's past tense. Something that has happened in the past because of the work of Jesus for you. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. So I just want you to see that word saved there is used in a past tense way, referring to the moment that God melted your hard heart and caused you to come alive to him. This past act of God in your life where God saved you from the penalty of your sin. This is what, this is what Ephesians 2 is talking about. So if we're going to talk about what the gospel accomplishes in light of disciple making, here's how we could say it. In light of this past tense view of salvation, we could say that through the gospel or the gospel is the power of God to make a disciple. 
The, the gospel is the power of God to actually make a disciple, to actually make us a Christian, to save us from the penalty of our sin. And, and so this is where we need to just be real clear here. There is a penalty for sin. Amen? Like God is not indifferent to sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's not just like a physical and temporal, you're going to die someday, although that is an effect of sin. But it is a spiritual and an eternal forever separation from God and all that is good. That's God's ultimate penalty for sin. So so God is really serious about this. And, And the way that God saves from the penalty of our sin is Jesus perfect life, death on the cross. This is how you can be reconciled to God. This is how you can be made right from God. This is how the penalty of your sin gets wiped away. If you want to think about this in terms of a theological word, here's the theological word. And this is a word worth knowing for every Christian. It's the word justification. This is a courtroom word. It's a theological word, a courtroom word. It's a biblical word that describes what happens at the moment you are saved from the penalty of your sin. That God would look at you and because of the work of Jesus, he would declare over you finally and fully that you are not guilty before him. That you are right with God forever. That this is what justification is. This is what it means to be saved from the penalty of your sin. Now, if you're a Christian in the room, say on that for just a second. That because of Jesus, here's what you are before God, justified, finally and fully declared not guilty before God. Selah. If you're a Christian in the room, when you think about that, there should be something inside of you that just starts to melt. That because of Jesus, God has pronounced over you, declared over you, not guilty. Right with me. Now, okay, I want, I want to do this for just a second here. Um, I, I want to talk to people in the room that you're kicking the tires on this thing. That, uh, that, that you're still investigating, you're still on the peripheral side, trying to figure out if Jesus is for you, not for you, or somewhere in, the, in between. And, and so I want to just take a minute this morning and, and give just some compelling imagery that I hope will insert some urgency into the situation for you. And, and so I, I want to just take a second to address that crew in the room this morning. I want you to picture this scene. I want you to picture yourself before, like you're in the valley looking up at the Hoover Dam. Can you get that picture in your mind? This is a dam that's 700 feet tall, holding back millions of gallons of water. And you're in the valley below it. And all of a sudden, as you're looking at this dam, you see that there is a crack that is formed right in the middle. And water is starting to come out of that crack. And then all of a sudden, the entire dam crumbles and you're downstream. Millions of gallons of water rushing at you. A a wave that's hundreds of feet tall coming at you. I mean, death is imminent. Death is certain for you. And then all of a sudden, in between you and this rushing water, the, the ground before you just drops out in front of you. And all, like these millions of gallons of water, death coming at you, all is absorbed in, in, in this, this hole that just opened up before you. Okay, now I want you to take that imagery and I want you to see this. This is exactly what Jesus is for you. 
that there is a real sense in which the rushing waters of God's wrath is more powerful than this water behind this dam that is coming and it is bearing down on you. There is a day where you're going to experience that. And on the cross, here's what happened. Jesus stands before, between you and this, the water of God's wrath. He opens up his mouth and he drinks every last drop of that. And this is why he can say it is finished. That every bit of God's wrath toward you and your sin has been drunk by Jesus on the cross. And so now now I I want you to know though, apart from Jesus, there's a day that that dam breaks and it kills you. That, That day is coming for every one of us apart from the cross where Jesus absorbs all of that water. And so in light of that, can I just encourage you? Like, what is it that is keeping you back from Jesus? I mean, don't, don't let your pride keep you away from that. Don't let your pride keep you in the path of God's wrath. Like, this should be the response when we realize that, that Jesus has taken God's full wrath for our sin. Our response should be to look at Jesus and put our faith in Jesus. But that means we trust Jesus that we are trusting Jesus' work for us to make us right before God. So we are trusting Jesus' work for us and we're treasuring Jesus above all things. That's what saving faith is. And here is the great news of the gospel. Bad news is, apart from Jesus, there's gonna be a day when you experience the full wrath of God. But here's the great news of the gospel is that doesn't have to be for you. That God stands ready and willing today. Jesus stands ready and willing today to take all of God's wrath for you. I mean, can I just, I want to take a second and just stop um, this morning and I want to pray for those in the room that are wrestling with that decision. That'd be okay. So I just want you to stop and pray with me. Um, God, we just want to take just a brief moment in the midst of, of this morning. And God, I want to pray for my friends in the room that are wrestling with the decision, the most important decision they'll make in this life because it determines the next one that are wrestling with this decision on what to do with Jesus. And God, I just want to pray for your spirit's work in their life. God, that that hardness and callousness, that those things would be pierced through and broken through. And God, that you would make their hearts alive to you this morning. And so God, I pray that there would be a great response to the work of Jesus in this room from people who are still struggling through and wrestling through all of that. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. So here is one thing the gospel does. It's the power of God for salvation in a past tense sense to save from the penalty of our sin. Okay, now now everyone in the room, I need you to look at me right now. But here's the thing. It does more than that. The gospel is bigger than just a past tense thing for us. Like the gospel is not just something we look to and thank God to for a past thing. It is like a present reality. Like for a believer, it's a present reality that the gospel is doing something in us today. So, so let me say it this way, that the gospel is not just God's means of saving us from the penalty of sin, but there's this present tense piece of this, that the gospel is God's way of saving us from the present power of sin in our life. Like today, present power of sin, the gospel is God's power to save you from that and me from that. So, so let me just show you one place where it just makes this really explicit. 
Um, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and 2. It'll be on the screen for you. You can mark that down and come back to it later. It'll be on the screen. So here's what I'm trying to say. The gospel is not just past tense, saved someone, but for a believer, it is present tense, saving you like today from the power of sin in your life. So first Corinthians 15, one and two goes like this. Now I would remind you brothers. So we need to be reminded constantly of the gospel. He's saying, I would remind you brothers of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received. That's the moment of conversion for them, which you received and in which you now stand. So the gospel is not just something you one day kind of in the past believed in. It's something you're present day standing in. And then verse two, and by which you are being saved. Can, can you see that? That Paul is saying the gospel is like today, the power of God to save you. Not in like a heaven and hell sense, not in a penalty of sin, of sin sense, but in the present power of sin in your life. Now, this is also what Romans 1.16 is, is teaching. That word believes in Romans 1.16, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is a present tense word. That means that it's a continuous action in the Greek. It's not just like this past thing that you believed in the gospel one day and now you kind of go on and do the rest of your life. That's not what Paul's getting at. It's you did believe it in the past one day and every day since then you're believing it. Like it's a constant and continuous, persistent belief in the gospel. Okay, so, so let, me, let me try to get at this this way. There is a common myth that goes around in Christian circles that, that looks like this. That there's a great acknowledgement when we think of God converting us or making us a Christian. There's a great acknowledgement that the gospel is God's means to do that. But then when we start thinking about growing as a Christian, about maturing as a Christian... It's almost as if this is what we think. Now we leave the gospel behind and now it's up to just sweat equity, blood, sweat, and tears. That's how you grow as a Christian. Okay, now I want you to look at me. That is not how you grow as a Christian. As soon as you leave the gospel behind, you are just cementing your faith that you will never grow as a Christian. You never grow apart from the gospel. You always grow as a byproduct of the gospel. This is what Paul's saying here. That, that this gospel I preached to you in which you received and in which you stand, it is the same gospel right now that you are being saved by, growing by, maturing by. So let me say it this way. If we're going to talk about the power of God for salvation being the gospel in disciple-making terms, we would say it like this. The gospel is not only God's power and means to make a disciple... It is also the power of God to mature a disciple, to grow a disciple. It's not just left to sweat equity after you become a Christian. It's the same gospel that, that made you a Christian, grows you as a Christian. Okay, this is what he's saying, that, that you are currently being saved by it. Okay, so let, let me walk through two implications of this real quick. Two ways of really saying the same thing, but in a little bit different language. So here's, here's one way to say it. That every sin problem you have, every problem, sinful problem you have is really just a gospel problem. Every sin problem you have is a gospel problem. There's a lot of places to show this, but let me go to Galatians 2. It'll be on the screen for you, or you can turn there, whatever makes you happy. Uh, but, but yeah, you can look on the screen. So here's one place to see that, that every problem, sin problem, is really a gospel problem. Let, let me work this out for you. Galatians 2, 11 through 14. This is when Peter and Paul are about to hook horns and go at it. Okay, so, so here's how it plays out. 
But when Cephas came to Antioch, when Peter came to Antioch, Paul said this, I opposed him to his face. Why? Because he stood condemned for before certain men, uh, for before certain men uh, came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Okay, now when you think about sin, it's always important to think of it in two different ways. That there are surface problems and there's a source problem. There is fruit issues and there is root issues. Okay, now here's the fruit or the the surface level problem of their sin. We've got racism in this passage where we've got a problem between Jew and Gentile. So, so Peter has some, like this racism re-emerging in him. So we've got that problem. And we've also got the fear of man. Before this group of guys, he would act this way. And when he'd get over in this group of guys, he'd act that way. So you've got this whole fear of man thing that's happening. Okay, now I want, so that's surface level, fruit level problem of sin. We would all look at that and easily call that sin. Okay, but I want you to see how Peter address, or how Paul addresses Peter in that sin. Okay, this is how he addresses him. He doesn't just say, hey, stop sinning. He doesn't just say, hey, Peter, you're a racist. He doesn't just say, hey, Peter, you've got fear of man problems happening here. He doesn't just say that. Here's what he goes on to say. Verse 14. He addresses the source or the root of their problem. Verse 14. But when I saw, and this is their, their root problem, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. See, if you want to know what their root problem is, that their heart was, was disengaged from all that Jesus had done for them. They had forgotten all that they have and all that they are in Jesus. There are parts and pieces of the gospel that they are not believing. That's why they're out of step with the gospel. Okay, so do, do you see what I'm trying to say here? That there are, there are surface level issues that we all have. But every one of those surface level sin problems is rooted in a gospel problem. We are out of step with the gospel. So let me just apply it across the room. Um, bitterness in the room. Do you know what that really is? A gospel problem. A lack of contentment in the room. Do you know what that really is? A gospel problem. Worry in the room. You know what that is? On, on the surface level, that's sin. But you know what the real problem is? It's a gospel problem. There's pieces and parts of the gospel that we're just not believing. Harsh words toward people, anger, impatience. You know what that really is? It's a gospel problem. Every sin problem we have is a gospel issue. There's surface levels and there's source issues. And the source, the root of every sinful issue you'll have go on in your life is just not believing a piece or a part of the gospel. All that God has promised to you in Jesus. So every, every problem, every sin problem is a gospel problem. Let me say it a different way, a positive way. That was a negative way to say it. Here's a positive way to say it. That growth is always linked to gospel awareness. Your growth, your maturity, the continual transformation of your life and your heart toward God, that is completely determined by your gospel awareness. It mirrors your gospel awareness. So let me... Uh, let you look at this passage in Colossians that just makes this explicit for you. This is Colossians chapter one. It'll be on the screen for you as well. And I'd encourage you to write these passages down, go back, look them over. Uh, This is Colossians one. Growth is always linked to gospel awareness. Colossians one says it this way. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Jesus, in Christ Jesus, and of the love that you have for all the saints. 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. Here is what the gospel does. It bears fruit and it grows. That's a gospel issue. Bearing fruit, growing, continual transformation, maturing as a disciple. That is, those are gospel issues. And now watch it. What, how he links this here. As it does among you. So it's not just around the world that it's producing this good fruit and growing. It's also in you that it's growing. And then now watch, watch the connection. How does it grow? How does it get traction in our heart? Like this. Since the day you heard it, so there is a hearing it. There is a getting the content of it. There's that piece, but then here's the second part. And understood the grace of God in truth. So so maybe I could say it this way. That Paul's saying that there is a direct correlation between your grasp of the gospel, you understanding the gospel, and your growth in Jesus. There's a direct correlation. See, if you're trying to grow by just willpower and another new principle, if you're trying to grow like that, you'll never make it. Your growth in Jesus mirrors, your growth as a disciple mirrors your grasp of the gospel. Okay, now I want to throw an image up here that has been really helpful as we've tried to make sense of this for people, just trying to be faithful to what the Bible teaches in this regard. This graph has been helpful for me to try to help people work through that. So let let me just throw this up here and, and try to make sense of that. From left to right on the screen is time. So from left to right is your life just working itself out. And when you are born, you you are a straight line. And at the moment of conversion, here is what happens. The difference between God's holiness, which is the top line going up, and your sinfulness becomes apparent. Okay, now when you look at the line going up there, that is just a growing awareness of who God is, his holiness. The line going down is just growing awareness of who you are, your sinfulness. And the moment when you're born, those two lines are flat. There's nothing, when you think about God and you, there's no difference. But the moment God saves you, the moment you were converted, the moment you became a Christian, here's what happened. The line between who God is and who you are became apparent to you. That's what happens when you're, when you become a Christian, that you start to get a sense of, wow, God is holy. I am sinful. We have a problem. And now listen to what that does when you realize you have a problem before God. It makes you turn to Jesus. And for the first time in your life, Jesus looks wonderful to you. See, that's the moment you got saved. Now you couldn't articulate all that, but that's what happened. There was a line, there was this divergence between who God is, who you are. And for the first time, your heart blew up as you looked at Jesus and you said, I need him. I am thankful for him. There is nothing in my life that I would want more than Jesus right now. That happens for every one of us in the moment we, that God saves us. Okay, now, now to kind of keep this ball rolling here. When we become a Christian, you don't have to know very much. All you have to know is God's holy, you're sinful, and you really, really, really need Jesus. That's all you have to know. But as we live out the Christian life, do you know what begins to happen for us? We begin to get a bigger sense of who God is. We grow in our awareness. Now this line going up is not like actually who God is. It's just our awareness of who God is. Our awareness of who God lives, the longer we're a Christian, should grow. We should have these Isaiah 6 moments where where God totally blows up our former picture of him. 
And everything that we know about God is recalibrated around this bigger view of God that he just gave us. So so we've got this increasing awareness of God's holiness, and we also should have this increasing awareness of our sinfulness. We should become more self-aware about the darkness that's in us. That although Jesus reigns in our heart, we still have this remnant of sin still in us. And we should become more aware of that. We, as we're growing in the awareness of our own heart, we should stop saying things like this. I can't believe they did that. And we should start realizing that apart from grace, you do it too. I mean, do you know that? That you are capable of any sin we want to talk about? I, I'm talking the worst of them. That you are capable of that apart from grace. See, if, if you don't feel that and know that, you don't have a good self-awareness of your own heart yet. That apart from grace, you are capable of all of that. See, as we grow in awareness of who we really are, here's what we all should be able to honestly say. I am the worst sinner I know. And that is true because I know my sin the most. We should all be able to say that in the room. Growing toward that. Okay, now I want you to see what happens as these lines diverge between our growing awareness of who God is and this growing awareness of who we are. Look at the cross here. Do you see what happens Grace and gospel cross become bigger and bigger and bigger to us. Did you see that? That the more you see who God is, the more you are seeing who you are, that the bigger Jesus becomes, the larger the cross looms in our life. Okay, now this is how spiritual growth works. This is how movement as a disciple works. You grow as your awareness of the cross grows. Like, maybe you could say it this way. The larger the cross becomes in your life, the more Christ-like your life will become. The more you are grasping the gospel, all that God has done for you in Jesus, the more your life is going to mirror that gospel. The more growth you're going to see. Did you see that? That spiritual growth is not like just blood, sweat, and tears, sweat equity into it, up to you. So get on your spiritual disciplines and get after it. That is not what produces spiritual growth. Now, all those things are good. We talk about those all the time here. All of those things are good, but in the right context. You've got to see this. How you grow as a Christian is your heart coming alive to all that God has done for you in Jesus. That's how you grow. See, if if it's all about just you doing more things, you're going to be a Pharisee. They did all the things in the Bible, but from the wrong motivation. See, until your heart is split wide open by what God has done for you in Jesus, you're never going to love God. You're just going to fear him. See, until until your heart is busted open by all that he has done for you in Jesus, there's never going to be an appropriate love for God. It's always going to be, I'm doing the duty, but with no desire. But, but when your heart is split open by all that he has done for you in Jesus, do you know what that produces? Love for God. And do you know what that produces? A life that is lived for God. See, the gospel is what does that though. The gospel is what splits your heart open, produces this vibrant love for God. And, and, and behind that produces this life lived for God. So let me maybe uh, make sense of it in an illustration here. There is two ways I could go about trying to grow you as a Christian in this, in this room. And let me use this imagery to describe it. I want you to picture your life as a balloon. Okay, so your life is the balloon. And, and my job as a pastor, let's just say spiritual growth, is to get the balloon up to the ceiling. So, so my job is to grow you to where you're rising to the ceiling. Now, there's two ways I could go about doing that as a pastor. 
One way is I could come in here every week and smack you with another thing to do. So if we're going to carry out the imagery, it would be doing this. It would be weekly coming in and I just take the balloon and I knock it up. And then what happens when you knock the balloon up? It rises for a second. It kind of falls back down. Next week you come back in and I tell you another thing to do. And I smack you again with another thing and the balloon rises again. And then it falls again. And next week you come back in and I smack you again and and it rises again. And and eventually over time, I might get you to the the ceiling, maybe. But what's going to happen as soon as I start smacking you with another to-do? It's going to be on the floor, isn't it? Okay, now let me give you another imagery for how spiritual growth works. And my job as a preacher works. See, my job as a preacher is not to come in and give you another thing to do. That's not my primary job. My primary job is to get the gospel in front of you. And if I can keep the gospel in front of you, continually reminding you of all that God has done for you in Jesus, do you know what that does to the balloon? It puts it over here on this helium tank, puts a bunch of helium in it. We tie it up and I don't have to smack you to get you to the ceiling. You rise there naturally then. Do you see the difference in that? See, it's not the God... Preaching is not just about you coming in here and me smacking you with another thing to do. It is about me constantly and consistently giving you weekly reminders of all that God has done for you so that you will naturally, in light of that, rise to the ceiling. So that you'll naturally, in light of that, begin to grow. That's what my job is. Every week. I like how one guy said it. He said the role of the pastor is to do this for his people. Every week, his people are going to be looking through a lens at life. And as they live in the midst of difficult relationships, in the middle of difficult work stuff, in the middle of just life, here's what happens to the lens that they're looking through. Dirt gets sprayed on it. It gets scratched. The the lens becomes hard to, to look through. And what my job is, is to every week come in and to get the Bible out and to use the Bible to polish your lens so that you can see all that Jesus has done for you clearly week in and week out. That's my job. That's what, that's what my role is here is to do that for you so that there will be natural growth that begins to to come out of that. Okay. Last thing. And then we're going to wrap it up here. Part number three, what does the gospel do? There's a future tense view of this as well. Answer. What, what does the gospel do? Future tense. The gospel will save you from the presence of sin. So it's not just this past reality. It's not just this present reality, but the gospel is the power of God to, in a future tense way of thinking, to save you from the presence of sin. Okay, now let me just give you this this last way of looking at it. This is Romans 13, 11. Just going to read it for you. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. And then it says this, in a future tense way, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. If you want a theological term to put on this, this would be called glorification. That there is going to be a day where every one of God's sons and daughters are met by God in a recreated world without sin. Completely, listen to this, completely free from the ravages of sin. When I read Revelation 21 and 22, there is something in my soul that just begins to stir in light of that. I mean, can you imagine the best of life now just without sin? Can you imagine that? God God is saying there will be a day where that's not just like an imaginary thing for you, but that is life for you. That there's going to be a day where the gospel saves you from, from the presence of sin.
So we're ending each one of these um, sermons with a prayer. And so I want to give you one thing to begin praying for our church family. So, so last week, it was extending the glory of God through disciple-making, the heart of that prayer. This week, it's on the gospel. And here would be the prayer. And we'll post this on the city for you this week. This would be something I would invite you to start praying for our church. Father, form us into a gospel-centered people. A people defined not by what we do, but by what you have done for us in Jesus. A people who like really, 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 really believe the gospel contains your great power to save, to both make and mature disciples. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just a second to sit under that and allow the Spirit of God to impress up in, uh, press up, just into your heart the things that would be most helpful today. And just as you're sitting there, if you, if you are kicking the tires on this thing, I mean, I, I just want to encourage you um, that there's urgency in that. And, and not to let anything like pride, the fear of man, keep you back from responding in faith to all that God has done for you in Jesus. The beautiful news of the gospel is that like God is willing today to save you. And that's the best of us in the room to those who have the worst record in the room. That God is willing to save you. And, and for the, the Christians in the room... The gospel is not something we get over. It's not something we get over. And so we need to be praying that God would make us a gospel-centered people, defined by the gospel, who really believe like right now, the gospel is God's means to to free us, to to move us through, to, to, to save us from the present power of sin in our life. And so, God, I just want to pray for our church family in light of that, that you would help us be that. God, that you would empower by your grace, great belief and great trust that your gospel is your power to save us, past, present, and future. And so, God, will you, will you do that for our church family? God, I pray that, that you would make wonderful disciples here. And God, we know that that starts with, and the means for that is your glorious gospel. And so, God, I pray that you would help us give great weekly reminders of that. And, God, that you would bust our hearts open to you in that. God, for our men in the room, that that we would be laid bare before you. Just every bit of hardness and callousness busted through. God, for our ladies in the room. God, that they would be defined by what you say about them in the gospel in Jesus. God, that they would believe that that your gospel is the power to save even them right now in the midst of their sin. 
And we pray that in and because of the beautiful name of Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.